This morning we will just spend a little more time in verse 2 and then we'll, I think, begin the next time with verse 3. But this morning what we're going to look at is what the Apostle Peter teaches us about something about the person and work of God as he has accomplished this great work of our election through his foreknowledge. So this morning, our concentration will be in a very specific area concerning who God is and how God is. Let's join our hearts in prayer. Father, Father, so typical of you, you give us opportunity to share a mountain and give us a molehill of time. But Father, we rejoice because within the context of that molehill of time, we know we have to rely upon the Holy Spirit communicating, causing understanding, creating application so that we may know you better. And knowing you better, Father, we may worship you as our astounding, astonishing, wonderful, incredible, holy God. Knowing in ourselves there is no one, nowhere, forever, like our God being overcome and overwhelmed continually that you have called us into eternal life because of your great mercy, because of your great love with which you have loved us. So, Father, only as you can by the Spirit, Father, take the the words of a man and translate them, Father, into the powerful, effective word of God by the Spirit into our hearts and souls so that we leave here. We will leave here knowing you better and understanding you more. And as a result, being more effective to be to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's look at verse 2. And that's where our emphasis will be this morning. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. When we read this verse, there is a great danger for us who have either been believers for a while or at least raised in the church, and I would believe that perhaps everyone in here, with just a few exceptions, have been raised in a Christian denomination. And so we read these words and we go through them very quickly because we're getting to the meat of the matter. We're getting to what we may consider is the good stuff, the deep things, what I really need. 
And so we have a tendency as we read the word to quickly go through, or if not just fast, but go through without attention. Forgetting this, that when these words were originally penned by a man under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God meant every word, every phrase, and every clause to be dynamically significant and vibrant for our lives. Everything about it. And when these words are penned, this verse and others like it that you'll see as you read the Word of God, this verse reveals the most amazing, the most mysterious, the most incredible truth of the Bible itself. This one verse. And if you don't camp out anywhere, Make sure you camp out in this verse because everything else flows out of and is a consequence of and is empowered by to be revealing of the truth that is contained in this one verse. What is that truth? It's the most amazing truth about God. You see, if someone would ask you, what is the most amazing, what is the central truth about God? God loves us. God is good. God is merciful. All of those are true. But all of those are truths that come out of and are the result of a central truth. And this morning we want to talk about that truth. This is a truth, you see, that has always existed Always has existed, but not always understood until the establishment of the church. What is this amazing truth? Here's the amazing truth, and you see it in verse 2. Follow along in verse 2. The amazing truth is this. God the Father, the Spirit, and Jesus Christ. That is the most amazing truth there is in all eternity. That our God is one in his being, but three in his person. Now, this may not rock your boat. But you see, this was the purpose of God in creating us. That in my people and through my people, all creation may know me in truth for who I really am. That I am God, eternal, majestic, sovereign and glorious, one in being, in essence. But three in persons. Listen to what Wayne Grudem has to say about this. He says, this verse mentions the three persons of the Trinity. God the Father, the Spirit, Jesus Christ. 
Peter specifies distinct actions from the different persons in the Trinity, yet sees them uniting to bring about a common goal, the eternal full salvation of those who were chosen to be exiles. What is this verse saying? What does this verse tell us about the person, the nature of God? You see, in verse 2, presents the Father as God in action. It presents the Spirit as God in action. It presents the Son as God in action. Now, we said this in the beginning and we'll reiterate. This is a mystery. How many of you know what a mystery is? It's something that we don't have all the answers for. And so as we go through this, you're going to find, I don't get it. I can't, but how does this, you know, let me encourage you to do this. We had our Sunday school class this morning and Keith spent the time in going through issues of mystery and how God brings seemingly contradictory issues together in harmony. You might want to get that tape because I felt that he did so well in describing what it is that we're talking about right now. I don't get this. I'm going to be sharing a little bit about a subject that, that I just don't get very well. I know a little bit about it because, you know, we do some studying, but it's just a mystery. The moment you think you have your hands on it, when I, and, you can't get a hold of it. What is it? So be careful. You cannot logically explain the Trinity. You know what happens when you do? You get cults. Jehovah's Witnesses. Mormons. You get cults. Unitarians. Because they're trying to explain it with the head rather than receiving it by faith from a God who is infinite and communicating to us who certainly are not very even finite at our best times. What Peter is telling us is what God has declared about himself in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that God is one, yet he is three. So let me break it down for you in four comments, and perhaps this is in your notes. Again, appreciation very, very, very much to Evan May, who puts these notes together. If they're not sufficient, it's Evan's fault. <clears throat> God is one in his being as divine. How many of you know what Deuteronomy 6.4 says? It's the great Shema. What does it say? Come on, Jewish lady, what does it say? No, Shema. Hear, O Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. God is one in his being. We are a monotheistic religion. Yet at the same time, God is three distinct divine persons. Each person of God is eternally, simultaneously, fully, equally, 
God in himself, but not God by himself. The Father is fully God in himself, but not by himself. The Son, fully God in himself, but not by himself. The Spirit, fully God in himself, but not by himself. How can this be? I don't know. But I know one thing. It is. How can it be? I don't know, but I know one thing. What, church? It is. Just because you can't explain it, don't you fold up underneath the fire of those people who think they know something. I'd rather come across stupid because that's easy for me to do. And say, I don't get it. I don't understand it. But I stand here forever depending upon this God having saved me that this is the truth. You see, that's where I stand. Each person of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, possesses the very same divine nature and essence. Because each is fully God in himself, but not by himself. Any more detail, you have to go to either Matt or Evan. I can't go beyond this. When did God reveal this triune nature? When? See, because the peculiarity of the whole thing is the Bible doesn't use the word trinity. It's a theological word which is used to describe the truth of what God has revealed himself about himself in the Bible. When did he reveal this? From the very beginning. Now, I don't like doing this kind of a sermon because there is an enormous amount of information we would love to bring to you one day should the Lord allow it and bless us. We would love to take a class, four, five, six weeks, whatever, and just teach the Trinity. It would take that long. And then we haven't even scratched the surface. When did this come about? When was it revealed? It started to be revealed in the New Testament. I'll just give you the very beginning revelation of the triunity, three in one. I'll give you the very beginning revelation of the uh, triunity. Turn to Genesis 1-1. Turn to Genesis 1-1. Now that's easy. That's right, the first book of the Bible. Now we're not going to go into detail here because I don't have the time. When was this triunity of God, this one being expressed as three or existing as three persons, when did this get to get going? Is this something just New Testament stuff? Now, how does the Genesis begin? In the beginning, does your Bible have a footnote to explain the Hebrew of that word God? How many of you see Elohim? as a footnote or a reference there. Does your Bible have that? And what does it say? Elohim is a plural word. Right in the beginning, God is identifying himself as plurality. And then in chapter 1, verse 26, he says, let us. Who? Who? Who's us? When you got one God around it. Let us make man in our image. So we begin in the Old Testament. And throughout the Old Testament, you see we have glimpses We have shadows. We have implicit revelation that God is very different from other gods. 
in his personal nature. Oh, but one day, one day, Luke says, and there were angels, I'm sorry, shepherds in the field, tending their flocks by night. And suddenly there were angels appearing, remember? And the angel said, don't be afraid, for unto you this day is born a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. We have news of a great joy. A child is being born. What joy? The joy of God to finally, within time, declare to his creation and to his people my triunity. I am Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You've just known me a little bit, but now in the incarnation of this second person of the Trinity, I now will show you who I am. And it is God's great joy to declare himself to his people. That's the joy. The joy of God to finally let us know who he is by impacting our lives through the man, Jesus Christ. That's the joy of heaven. Don't think it's just the joy of getting people saved. That's the way, the means that God expresses in humanity and in his creation. His joy to be self-revelating of who he really is. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is God's great passion that we would know him for who he really is. Remember what Jesus said on the night that he was betrayed in John 14 verse 9. He says, I'm going away. And Philip says, well, before you go, will you show us the Father? What does Jesus say? Philip, have I been with you this long that you asked me, show us the Father? He says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. You see, this truth is fully proven in the resurrection. On that morning... In displaying glory, God comes forth to say, Now I am ready, having displayed my triunity and my essential nature and character through the incarnation of Jesus, I am now ready to display it in my church. And 50 days later, remember, the power of the Holy Spirit struck. Men and women in an upper room experienced all kinds of things. And thousands were saved through the preaching of a fisherman. By the power of the Holy Spirit. Why is this so important? Well, you know, I'm, as long as I have Jesus. As long as I have Jesus, brother, I have. No. First of all. It's important first because Jesus insisted on us knowing the truth. That's why it's important. You see, it's not important initially because I get something out of it. It's important initially and primarily and really very basically because it's the truth about God. 
When we read the Bible, we need to be very careful that we don't make us and our lives and what is going on in us the primary activity. The primary thing here is the revelation of the glory and grandeur of our God. How? Through our redemption. Why is this so important? Because Jesus says it is. Let's turn to John chapter 14. And look at what Jesus said in verse 6 and following. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. How do you say that if you're not God? In saying these things, he's proclaiming the triunity of God. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you also would have known my Father. You see, Jesus insists on our knowledge of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This is not something you can take or not take. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And this is when Philip asked, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long, and you still don't know who I am, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? They share the same essence and nature. The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the count of the works themselves. Truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, and again, within me, in the context of him being a member of the Godhead divine in himself, you believe me, you will also do the works that I do, and greater works then these will he do because I am going to the Father. Jesus is continually connecting them to the Trinity. See, he's telling them that we must believe that he is God from God. Why else is it important? Because our very salvation is dependent upon this. First, it's important because God said it, and this is the truth. That's the reason. But on top of that, built on that, is our salvation. Why is it important to believe in a trinity? Because without an understanding of some sort by the Holy Spirit of the trinity, you're not saved. Well, I thought I was saved because I asked Jesus to be my Savior. He's not your Savior if he's not a member of the Trinitarian God. He's somebody else. You see, Jehovah's Witnesses have made him someone else. So I didn't think doctrine mattered that much. It is essential. You've got to know the truth. If you're going to walk with Jesus in a free and maturing way. 1 John 1, 7 The apostle says this, but if we walk in the light as God is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. 
We're going to talk about God. I'm just a God person. I'm, you know, okay, fine. If we're going to be in the light, you have fellowship with one another, we must walk in the light as God is in the light. And the blood of Jesus, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. And immediately the apostle says, if you're going to walk in the light and have fellowship with God, you only can have fellowship with God through the cleansing work of the blood of Jesus. You see, if there is no trinity then there is no God's Son. If there is no Trinity, Jesus Christ is not God's Son. Do you affirm that or not? (laughs) If there is no Trinity, Jesus Christ is not the Son of God. Therefore, we have no cross. Well, we have a cross, but it doesn't mean anything. We have no forgiveness. We have no redemption. We have no gospel. We have no hope. This is central. Our ability to be saved rests in our believing the truth about God. And what is that truth? What is the most significant and central truth about God? It is not that God loves me. It is that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Therefore, He loves me. The central truth is God. Therefore, I know the truth about God. I can experience all that God has for me. Someone asks you what the most important thing in your understanding of Christianity is. Share this first. You can certainly say God loves you, but then when you get their attention, sit down and begin to say, here it is. This is astounding. No other religion has that. You know, these goofballs say that, you know, you can get to, it doesn't matter what's that guy's name, Allah, you know, his, he, and all these other, it doesn't matter. It does matter because there is no God at all except the God that is revealed through the Trinity. Oh, I could have said it this way. There is There are other gods, but they all are going to hell. Because God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit, this, He is our God. And He's not only our God, He is God forever. You see, It is this significance that Peter emphasizes in verse 2 in describing the relationship of the Trinity to our salvation. Okay, fine. I got it. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Well, how does this work for me? What does it have to do with my salvation? And you should ask that. Because you see, the reason God has revealed his truth to us is to cause us to become a partaker, partaker of that truth. Second Peter says, we have been made partakers of the divine nature, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have been made partakers, co-participants with, family members of, Not just God, 
but God as Father, God as Son, and God as Holy Spirit. We've been made partakers of the divine nature in 2 Peter chapter 1. This is the divine nature that Peter is talking about in that second letter. And that he begins with in this letter. So how does the Trinity work in relation to our salvation? It is important and necessary to know that because God reveals himself as truth. And he functions that way in our lives. And so we must understand not only the person of God, but the working of God in order to be saved. And you'll see that in a moment with just one of my comments. You see, what Peter explains in verse 2 are the roles and relationship within the Trinity. The roles and the relationship of each person of God in our salvation and our sanctification. What he's explaining here by telling us God the Father, Spirit, and Jesus Christ What he's giving us here first is a revelation that God is one in being yet three in person. And then he's explaining the roles and the relationship within the Trinity. It's a huge revelation in just a very few words. Listen to this quote from Bruce Ware. And by the way. Bruce Ware has written a little book called Father, Son, and Spirit, or Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I absolutely love it. It's about that big. I don't know how much it costs, but it is an incredible book concerning the issues of the Trinity. I recommend highly that you get that and that you read it. It's not very long, and it's very easy reading because Bruce Ware is one of those theologians that write so most of us can understand. I think we have it in the bookstore. Evan, where are you? Is Evan in here today? Do we have him in the bookstore? Yes, that must mean yes. Okay. Listen to what he says. In order for us sinners to be saved. May I repeat that, uh, what he said. In order for us sinners to be saved. Now, everybody ought to have your ears perking up. One must see God at one and the same time as the one judging our sin, the Father, The one making the payment of infinite value for our sin, that's the cross, the divine son. And the one empowering and directing the incarnate human son so that he lives and obeys the father going to the cross as the substitute for us. That's the Holy Spirit who does that. The Christian God to be savior must then be father, son, and Holy Spirit. So what is the role? Succinctly put, the role is this. You may use different words, but as long as we mean the same thing. The Father is the one who wills or purposes that we will be saved. The Son is the person of the Trinity who carries out, who purchases at the cross that salvation, who accomplishes that will of God the Father. And it is the Holy Spirit who applies the finished work of Jesus at the cross according to the preordained will of God Holy Spirit applies that to my heart and your heart when he bursts us into the kingdom of God. Now, which person can you leave out and still be saved? Which one is more important than the other?
How does God accomplish our salvation? How does this three-in-one do it? The Father's role in our salvation. What is the Father's role in my salvation? What is it? Well, all I'm going to do today and for the rest of the next few moments is just quickly go through the roles of the persons of the Trinity. You've heard this over and over again, but let's this time hear it within the context of a larger painting or appreciation of the majesty and mystery of our great God. Seeing that each person of the Godhead certainly does act individually, but never independently. Each person of the Godhead will certainly act individually, but never independently. God always works fully, all three persons, in every aspect of what is happening. It's just that one person of the Trinity will take particular role leadership in an aspect of the work of our salvation, but never by himself. Therefore, you get a little glimpse of why it's important for the church to be in unity and knowing the I don't need anybody. I can be a Christian on my own, being out fishing. I don't need the church. That's a lie. Why? Because God is not like that in himself. The son is not saying, I don't need the fellowship of the Father and the Spirit. I can do it on my own. We need this. Why? Because it's the only way to be truthful about the revelation of God in himself. Well, I don't know. Is that important? It is important. How do I know? Because Jesus died to make it so for me and for you. He died to make it so. He died that we would be the revelation of his triune nature. This is important to God. The Father's role, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. It is the Father's plan and has been for eternity, never having begun. Always has been His will, His purpose. Way, way, way back there. And when you get back there, you still got a long way to go. Way back there. It's always been what? Always been the Father's will to have a people for His praise. And his purpose has always been that that people, those people would come into his kingdom through the death of his son. You see, when Jesus said, let there be light, Jesus said that? Hmm. John 1.1. 1, 1. When Jesus said, let there be light, he said it in the context of Father's will. Now, It's time for you to create. Knowing that when the Father said to the Son, create now, and the Son, in obedience to the Father's leadership, created, knowing that when he did that, he would have to die for this creation. Knowing he would die, he creates all things. You see, someone said, well, if Jesus had not died, whatever. If Jesus had not died, we wouldn't even be here. Because the entire creation was God's decree to declare himself. And Jesus carries it out as a part of the Godhead, knowing fully 
having the same knowledge and purpose and will and power that the Father has in himself but not by himself. He knew the consequences. But more than that, he knew the joy. For Hebrews 12, 2 says what? Oh, for the joy that was set before him. What joy? The joy of declaring the Father's greatness through this redemption applied by the Holy Spirit. The joy. Acts 2.23, Peter is preaching. And he's telling these people who had 50 days before been participants in the crucifixion. And he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Don't you ever back off from being confrontational with unbelievers. Don't you back off from saying your sin is the reason for the cross. But the cross is the opportunity for you to have your sins forgiven. Don't you back off. Don't make this watered down. They have to hear a clear word from God. That Jesus died for their sin. Not just because they'd done a few things wrong and they didn't have a good day. Sin. Listen to Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4. Magnificent, 3 to 14, magnificent verses. Bill Treby taught them years ago. Incredible. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he God the father chose us in him in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him it is the father's plan to save us what's the son's role in our salvation he says and I skip the spirit because I'm going in an order different than what Peter has here although he is not wrong to say what he's doing saying to Jesus Christ the verse says and for the sprinkling of his blood What is the role of the son? It is the son's role to carry out the father's plan. And there is one way to carry out the father's plan. Jesus must die for the sin of his people and pay the full weight of the wrath and fury of God upon our sin in himself, carrying it to the cross so that we in him may never be judged again for our sin but have eternal life. Someone should have yelled. If we're going to yell about the saints' victory today, this is better than the saints' victory. This is our victory. This is where it's at here. I hope they win, but this is the victory of all victories. The son's role. The son's role. Oh, let us be excited about what God is doing. Don't hold yourselves back. Blurt it out. Uh, someone said the other day, well, I was afraid to say something, but I, I, I said, you yell, I'll out yell you any day of the week. Because I'm not afraid to yell when it comes to this great message of the gospel. Listen to Ephesians 1.7. In him, in whom? In Christ. We have Redemption. That means a purchase through his blood. And Peter will get into this later. The forgiveness of our trespasses. We're going to stand before this holy God. 
this majesty of majesties, every one of us in this room one day will die. And you ought to say, thank God. And every one of us in this room, every one will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The apostle tells us that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 10, verse 5. And we will be judged according to the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. Then he says, knowing the fear of God. This is chapter 5, verse 5, 10, 11. Knowing the fear of God, we persuade men. Every one of us will be judged. And the judgment will be this. Did you believe my son's testimony about himself and about me? That in Christ and only in Christ can you experience the full, final, and forever forgiveness of your sin. Only in Christ. We live and die on this. You see, Jesus came for the specific purpose of dying. Listen to what he says in Matthew, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, although it's in Matthew. He says, for even the Son of Man, he took that title upon himself, the incarnation, the divine Son of God, having become the divine man in the flesh. And even the Son of Man came, that specific purpose. I came. I just didn't kind of wander in here. I came for one specific purpose. Not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I said a moment ago, it is important to understand the roles of the Trinity. The Father did not die at the cross. The Son of the Spirit did not give up his life to die. The Son died. Why? Because in the counsel of God, the eternal counsel and purpose of God was this. That the son would die for our sin. It's a son who dies. Now we know this. What is the spiritual role in my salvation and your salvation and sanctification? Verse 2 says, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. You see, it's the Spirit's role to apply this great salvation that Hebrews talks about, not neglecting this great salvation. It's great. Why is this salvation great? Tell me why. It's not great because I needed it. It's not great because I have been saved. It's not great because I'm going to heaven. It's great because it declares the greatness of our God. That's why it's great. That's why sanctification is so imperatively important. It's about God. And it's from God. It's for God. You see, it's a spiritual role to apply this salvation planned by the Father and purchased by the Son at the cross. 
Spirit's specific work. Not to manifest or point to or talk about himself, but to take that which God has done in Christ and make it real in me and in you and in everyone who places their saving faith in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1.13, the Apostle Paul continues in this great hymn, and he says, In him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee, the down payment of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. See, You notice that the Apostle Peter says, and he puts it this way, to the obedience of Jesus Christ. The Spirit applies it to our hearts. Remember Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27 and so on that we spend a little time with? I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will cause you to obey my word and walk in my ways. You remember that? He says the Spirit is going to do this, but he's going to do it through the means. He's going to do it. He's just not going to save us by himself without our cooperation. How many of you know what Ephesians 2.8 says? For by grace... You have been saved, or are you saved, depending on the verse. For by grace are you saved. Now, first of, all, that's, first of all, stop there. Jesus saves at the cross. The blood of Jesus saves us. The Holy Spirit applies that to my heart. But how do I get it? How do I become embracing of him who has embraced me so that the two are becoming one? The unity. I say yes. It's called faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith what? Faith believing unto Jesus Christ, repenting of our sin, and faith in Christ. Rejecting the sin and receiving the Savior whose blood forgives me and washes me clear of that. Obedience. And it is the same. How many of us would be upset if I said, you know, it's not obedience to receive Christ isn't that important? How many of you would agree with me on that? Obedience to receive Christ, now it's important, but you know, I don't want to make too much of it. Would you agree with that? No. If I said it, you throw me out. And if you don't throw me out, you need to be thrown out when I'm thrown out. Well, then we come to the sanctifying work, you know, the progressive work, sanctification, that sanctifying work that God is, after I have been brought into the kingdom by grace through faith, God is in the process of forming and fashioning and molding and creating into me And into you, the truth that God is three, yet one, but
but he's three. He's creating that in us. And we have to be careful that we not take the faith to be saved and diminish its significance and its priority and make the faith to be sanctified less significant. It has the same weight with God. Well, I don't think God's going to be upset about that. I don't think that's that. You know, I I think it'd be okay. Mm. If that's how you feel about your walk with God, you need to go back and check out why was it so important initially that you absolutely and narrowly put your whole trust and being and future into the hands of this Savior. And now you think you can be a little more lackadaisical now that, you know, I'm a believer. It doesn't work. It's the same faith that saves that keeps me saved all the way till the end. You see, God's sovereign work is joined to my sovereign response. See, after we've been sealed by the Spirit, we're then led by the Spirit in His work of conforming us to Christ. It's called sanctification. I mean, didn't He use that word sanctification right here? You see, God saved us not just to save us. Salvation, as far as the moment of salvation, wasn't God's big deal. That was the doorway that opened me and you into the big deal. Oh, the doorway's important. We see, God is not primarily emphasizing the moment I'm saved, but the fact that my life is a display of that great salvation of Jesus Christ. We have a tendency to prioritize the moment Where God doesn't prioritize the moment. He prioritizes the entire process unto glory. Let us not make more of one aspect of our salvation. I have been saved. I am being saved. And I will be saved. All three tenses used in the New Testament about our relationship with Christ. And we're excited about people getting saved. And we should be. But we also ought to be as passionate and excited about people walking in the reality and in the power of that salvation. And that's where we kind of lose a little. Who will move heaven and earth to get that uncooperative, nasty neighbor into Alpha to be saved? But then we'll live lackadaisically in other areas. It doesn't compute. Because God is a unit. He's one. He's one. So the power of the Spirit to birth us into the kingdom of God by faith is the Spirit's same power to keep us in the kingdom of God by faith. Is it important what you believe? Yes. Hopefully this morning, with just a minuscule amount of time that we've had, we will see 
that God is so much larger and more glorious and great and majestic. There is just so much to say about this. Suffice it to say, however, this morning, our prayer is this, that God has wet your appetite to know him more than ever before. And how will you know him? Only in Father. Father. Think of that word, Father. Son. Think of that, Son. And Holy Spirit. Think of that word, that name. This is how we know God. This morning... If you don't know God this way, if the Holy Spirit has pricked something inside of you to say, when I heard those testimonies, I felt something that I need that. That's God telling you of the great need of being saved. If this morning you have sat here and have heard something, not with your audible ears, but with the ears of your heart, hortatory, deep down in your heart. If you've heard something, and you feel someone wooing, and you want that, that causes you to be so dissatisfied and rejecting of what it is that you've done or who it is that you've been. That's God. Saying today is a day of salvation for you. And so as we sing this morning, as Matt closes us in song, if that's where you are, I don't know. If you're not sure, but would you do something brave? Would you come down here, right here with us? And let us share with you and let us see perhaps... Is today the day of your salvation that you enter God's kingdom to be a forever citizen of the kingdom of God as he applies the blood of Jesus to your sins and births you into the kingdom of God. As we sing this morning, if that's who you are, just come on down and we'll be here. Holy, holy, holy Stand Lord God Almighty Early in the morning Our song shall rise
say 